Hear then the word of God from the Old Testament, Isaiah 59, verses 15 through 21. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay, wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the Spirit of the Lord dries. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My Spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. From the New Testament, Romans 11, verses 25 through 36. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, grant that we shall understand your word this day that we will be humbled by our understanding of your grace. And may we, as Paul here, be truly caught up in the wonders of your grace and single out your praises, the wonders of the God who loves sinners and saves them through his own precious blood. Amen. Please be seated. So today we come to the conclusion of that section of Romans, Romans 9 through 11, in which Paul seeks to explain the mystery, as he calls it, the mystery of Israel's failure and of the coming of the Gentiles to be the people of the living God. He has already explained that there has been this back and forth, a seesaw, in which Israel's rejection brings about the coming in of the Gentiles. And the coming in of the Gentiles 
causes jealousy among the Jews and calls them also to the church of Jesus Christ. But there's a question as to what exactly is going on, what is Paul here revealing? And so let us then put it back into context in order to understand these verses correctly. Understand the purpose of the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul has declared, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that he has been appointed as an apostle to preach the gospel, the good news, that gospel which alone saves sinners. And he has declared, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, even though the whole world hates it. Because the world wants to hear, if you're good, God will love you. And if you're bad, you will be punished. This, of course, suits men's temperament. It makes innate sense. Good people are loved by God. Bad people are hated by God. And, of course, everybody views themselves as better than they should. Every one of us will say, yes, of course, I'm a sinner. I've done this or that wrong. But then at the end of the day, I can always think of someone worse than me. And I can always remember sins I could have committed that I didn't do. And so I get a feeling of righteousness from this. And Paul says, but this is not the gospel. This is not what God has revealed. God isn't telling you, oh, it's so wonderful that you were able to avoid these sins. The law condemns you for all the sins you did commit. And every one of us has committed sins every day of our lives against all points of God's law. Though maybe not outwardly manifested, the reality is there is no one who does good, not even one. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. No one seeks for God. That is Scripture's judgment about us. And so Paul says, but I have a gospel which says, God saves sinners by grace. That he saves the unworthy and the unlovable. And though the rest of the world mocks and scorns this gospel, I am not ashamed of it. Because it is the only gospel that saves sinners. He then goes on to explain how this can be. He says that those who are unrighteous, by the instrument of faith, receive a righteousness that is not their own. An alien righteousness, which belongs, is the property of Jesus Christ through his work. He then shows us the economy of God. In Adam, all sinned. Adam stood as a representative head and was a type of him who was to come. He was a shadow of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus Christ shows up as the new federal head, and all whom he represents obtain his righteousness. And Paul says, this is the economy of God. This is the mechanism of your salvation. Not your own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness made yours by the instrument of faith. And therefore, God can save sinners. And so... Paul now has basically given us the gospel. Then he goes on to explain some of its implications. Since you have been saved by grace, you no longer belong to yourself. You are no longer free to go on sinning. In fact, he says, it is impossible, once you have been saved, to delight in sin more than you delight in God. The believer is going to be putting to death sin more and more each day, as the Spirit of God works in him, sanctifying him. Now, in this life, Paul tells us, this work is never completed. He speaks of his own inner struggle. I keep doing the things I know are wrong. 
I keep doing the things that I hate. The only reason he can know it's wrong and he can hate it is if he has been made alive through Jesus Christ. And then he says, but thanks be to God, despite my failings, I have been delivered. And there is now no condemnation. And this eventually, by the end of chapter 8, goes to this wonderful doxology, this wonderful praise to God, where he states absolutely his assurance. There is nothing in this world or in the world to come, in the material world that we see or in the spiritual world which is hidden from our eyes, which can ever separate me or you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are overwhelmingly more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And with that high praise, we come to chapters 9 through 11. The question is brought up. If this God is so powerful and so effective in his salvation, where did he go wrong with Israel? Why did he fail with them? And so the Apostle Paul goes on to explain to us from multiple Old Testament scriptural quotes that this question is a misunderstanding. He says, God never declared physical Israel to be his ultimate people. And he never said all of physical Israel would be saved. And then he goes on scripturally to demonstrate not all Israel is true Israel. And that is what Romans 9 through 11 have been about. National Israel contained both the elect of God, the true Israel, and the reprobate, the material, physical Israel. And therefore, all the descendants of Abraham were not saved. It is through Isaac that your name will be reckoned. It is through Isaac that the promises will come. And then from Isaac's children, it is from Jacob and not from Esau that the promises will come. And then he goes on to explain, God does not work simply through a community and then indiscriminately everyone in that community receives the same blessing. But rather, it is through the chosen and elect ones whom God predestined beforehand. They are the ones who will receive the promise. They are the true Israel within the broader covenant community. And then by the end of chapter 9, he explains that this particular elect Israel of God is not simply from the 12 tribes of national Israel, but from the Gentiles as well. And he goes on to apply numerous Old Testament prophecies to the Gentile mission that he has been called to do. He understands himself to be an object of prophecy in Second Corinthians. I'm sorry, in Colossians. He goes on to explain how he is the last apostle, the last one called to do these things. And his mission is to fulfill all these other prophecies given that the Gentiles may be called in to belong to the true Israel of God, which is a distinct entity even within the visible Israelite community in the Old Testament and now within the visible Jew-Gentile church. He then goes on to explain how this can be. He goes on to explain and say, it's not by natural descent, but by God's calling and election. And in chapter 10, there's that section that is often used for sending out missionaries. How will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless one preaches? And how will one preach unless he is sent? But you notice where it is an argument. 
It is that by the preaching of the word, God brings faith in the believer through the work of the Spirit. And those who have this faith worked in them by the Spirit, they receive the promises, they become the true Israel of God, and they are the recipients of all the blessings. You see how the argument of chapters 9 through 11 is building up to show us and make us to understand God's promises never failed. And so the coming of the Christian church is not a second team. It's not a kind of a scramble where God is seeking to find a new way of salvation now that the Jews failed in their task. The Apostle Paul is explaining the church is the fulfillment of all the Israelite promises. In the church, the true Israel is to be found. The church receives the promises. The church are the people of God. Last few weeks in chapter 11, we have been seeing that Israel is not cast away, but that there has always been a remnant of Israel preserved. But that goes back to chapter 9. Not all Israel is Israel, but there was always within Israel an elect chosen remnant. And therefore, God's promises to national Israel haven't failed, because the remnant has obtained it. And God's promise to the true Israel hasn't failed, because that was the church, which is now being filled with Jews and Gentiles. We saw last week the idea of the Jewish root, which supports the now the branches, which is the church, and that we as Gentiles coming in should not look down upon the Jews. We should not see them as being lesser than us. After all, this is the mistake of the Israelites. They believed they were better than the Gentiles, which is why they had the promises, but they were cut off because of lack of faith. And now we are told, don't you become arrogant and follow in the same error of the Jews, but rather understand, God by grace has chosen you, God by grace has grafted you in, and God by His grace will keep you in a true and living faith, grafted into the root and stock, which is the Father's and Israel. And now, therefore, you are sons of Abraham, you are the Israel of God. That is where we find ourselves now. Now, Romans 11, chapters, uh, verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, of all these things I'm telling you about the Israel within Israel, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the completion, the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. What then is being said here? A common misinterpretation is a dispensationalist one which teaches there was a period in which the Jews were the people of God. Ultimately, the Jews really are the people that God wants. But for the time being, because they rejected Jesus, God has brought in the second team. And the second team is the Gentiles. And so for the moment, God is doing something with the Gentiles. But eventually, that period will finish, and then the Gentile church is removed. The rapture comes in, takes us out. And then the Jews come in, and then all Israel, national Jews who are alive at the time, are saved. And this is how God's real plan is fulfilled, is through national Israel, who then goes out and preaches the gospel. However, 
from what we have already seen from what Paul says, we see this is not the case. Paul has already asserted the promise has not been broken. Israel has not been set aside in this way to be brought back later, but rather within the elect remnant of Israel, the promise is being fulfilled already in Paul's time. And as the Gentiles are coming in, they are being grafted into this line of promise and are receiving the promise themselves. And so when the fullness, when all the elect of God are called in, Jew and Gentile alike, the completion of the Gentiles has arrived within this root and stump. In this way, all Israel is saved. Through this manner of my preaching the gospel, which brings the Gentiles in, which makes the Jews jealous so they come in, in this way, all Israel is saved. Notice the things that are missing from a model which says that there should be a rapture of the Gentiles. For one, there is no mention of a rapture of the Gentiles, which then leaves just a Jewish church. Secondly, Dispensationalism always speaks of Israel gathering together again in Canaan and then having a physical Jerusalem with a physical temple and a physical priesthood. None of that is present here either. What would be the main reason for its absence? It doesn't belong here. It's not true. What is being told to us is that in this very day, in this Christian church, Filled with Jews and Gentiles, all God's promises to Israel are being fulfilled. Go back and look at the prophecies we have already examined in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Chapter 9, the prophecy in Hosea. I will call those who are not my people, my people, and who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be said, in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. In the prophet Hosea, everyone assumes this is referring to Israel and Judah as they rebel against God. The Apostle Paul is applying it directly to the Gentiles. We saw in Acts chapter 15 from the prophecy of Amos, In those days I will raise up the fallen tent of David, which was taken to mean that there would be a physical Davidic king reigning in Jerusalem in some future time after Amos. However, at the Council of Jerusalem, which we have recorded in Acts 15, we are told by Peter and James that this presence in gathering of the Gentiles is the fulfillment of this prophecy. So what then? Is Paul now going on a totally different line and contradicting everything else and declaring that somehow everything he said in all the other letters, that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, that Christ in his body has removed that wall of separation. Is he rejecting all this and creating another way? That makes no sense. More likely is that Paul is consistent with what he has written elsewhere. And therefore we are being told now that we, in Jesus Christ, are the recipients of all the promises. It is now in us that Jesus, the son of David, is reigning from heaven above. His kingdom is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom. It does not need physical borders. Yet it has us as its citizens. We are, therefore, the great privileged ones who serve as 
priests and a holy nation of the great king of kings. That is what Paul has been driving towards. God's promises did not fail because not all Israel is Israel. But in this way of the preaching going forth, the Gentiles being gathered in and Jews being made jealous and coming in, all true Israel is even now being saved. And then he quotes the prophecy from Isaiah, which you see there on the other page, 59. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is his, my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The covenant that God makes with his people that he will deliver is that he will take away their sins. What did Jesus accomplish? He took away our sins. If this is the covenant that is being given, this is the covenant that we now receive. Therefore, we must see ourselves as the high point and fulfillment of God's redeeming work. We, not as particularly you, but you as a member of the covenant community. What then is there that you are lacking? What then is there that God has failed to give to you? You are objects of his particular love, chosen by name as opposed to others, delivered by the work of his own life and death. And now you are being told, do not be arrogant about your standing. That's the warning being given. Do not be uninformed. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not despise the Jews, but understand this. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is by grace you are being upheld this day. It is by grace you will be preserved till the end. And therefore, serve the true God with true humility. Go before the Lord your God and acknowledge that you have a firm assurance that His love is for you, that you do not doubt His word in any way. You believe that he has done all that is necessary, so you will not, as we looked at in the first commandment, set up idols in your heart and seek your security elsewhere. What is chapters 9 through 11 doing? It is calling you to give up all doubts, to set aside all attempts at works and self-righteousness, and to trust in God because his promises did not fail anyone ever. Therefore, your full confidence can be in him. He is making a new covenant that we are told here. Isaiah 59. Looking back, God says, the Lord saw and it, displeased, it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. That is, there's no one who can stand between him and his wrath and the people on whom he would pour out his wrath. There is no one righteous who delights in doing the good. So then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. So God upholds the deliverer whom he sends. And he put on a righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. And so the deliverer 
had to be sent by God and upheld by God to bring about redemption of a people who were sinful and unwilling to even deal with their sinfulness, to even acknowledge it. And then you see this imagery, of course, is picked up in Ephesians, where Paul tells us we as Christians now in Jesus Christ are to clothe ourselves with this same armor. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. And so they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the Spirit of the Lord drives. To whom is this warning being given? Well, it's not national Israel, because note the extent in verse 19. From the west to the east, to the rising of the sun. In other words, the whole world shall see the power of this one who comes, in order that he will bring about reconciliation, who will punish the evildoers and bring about righteousness and redemption for the elect. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. The Apostle Paul makes this where the Deliverer will come from Zion. He's not changing the reality of what's being said. The Deliverer will come to the Zion which is on earth, but he will come from the heavenly Zion and from the Israelite line to deliver those who turn from transgression. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. And so the prophet declares, the spirit of God will descend and remain upon those who are redeemed. Well, to whom does this refer? What happened on the day of Pentecost? The Spirit of God descended upon the apostles who were to be the proclaimers of the gospel, the ministers of the church. And the Holy Spirit came down upon all those who were being saved. Therefore, this prophecy that is being given here in Isaiah 59 and quoted by Paul in Romans 11 as refers to Israel is the prophecy that is fulfilled in the Christian church. What else can this be then that we are the objects of this prophecy. We are the recipients of all these blessings this day where our sins are taken away from us. And so now, as we look at the whole of redemptive history, Paul tells us to consider the following. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So, do you look down on the Jews? Don't be so arrogant or foolish. God has only brought an end to their national covenant in order to bring salvation to you. For your sake, he had the national covenant destroyed and now brought its fulfillment in the church so that you would receive those promises. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. What he has done is broadened the body of those who will be the recipients. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that, that because of the mercy shown to you, 
they may now be shown mercy. So do not think that all Jews have been rejected. Do not think that being a Jew is somehow the definition of being a non-Christian. But rather, as you were disobedient and God showed forth the wonders of his grace by saving you, he's doing the same by saving them as well. They are now disobedient in order that they may be shown mercy. And so God will eventually will be glorified because of this reason. Verse 32. For God has shut up all, all kinds of people, all nations, in disobedience, that he might show mercy to all kinds of people and all nations, in order, of course, that he may be glorified. And so now Paul, as he deals with all this, comes to the doxology, all the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. Paul, having now been given visions of true things by God, so that he may prophesy of them, so that he may declare them to us, at the end is overwhelmed by what he has been told. He is overwhelmed as he sees now all the different threads of Old Testament prophecy coming to fulfillment. And he just can say, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Because I can't even fathom how God has worked all these things out. How it is that he makes promises to one group, but then expands it to include their enemies and makes them his own precious possession. He can't understand how God can take a race of people who killed his son and still extend mercy to them and continue calling in a remnant of them and still extending the promise to them when really destruction should have been their proper lot for killing the only begotten Son of God. He says, God's ways are not my ways. They are unfathomable, but God has no obligation to answer me and make his system rational to me. That goes back to Romans 9. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? We are the clay that has been formed into objects of mercy. We are not to question what he does with the objects of his wrath or with anything in all creation. What have we given to God that he owes us anything more than he has said? For from him and through him and to him, that is about as conclusive as you can get, or inclusive. From, from him, through him, to him are all things. And therefore, having learned all these things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. And so, keep in mind the context. Paul is an apostle of the gospel who has declared to everyone, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But in Jesus Christ, a righteousness which is not your own will be given to you so that you may stand before God in the day of judgment. And anyone who doubts whether God will bring this about, anyone who questions God's wisdom or actions in history, he has now said, look at the facts. Not one of God's promises has failed. Therefore, not one of you should have a doubt about God's sincerity or God's promise or God's strength to deliver you. Therefore, rest in God and be enraptured. Be thrilled 
by the wonders of His grace and His majesty this day as you come before Him as a redeemed people grafted into the root and branch of the tree of promise and acknowledge that you are in fact this day the precious possession of the Lord God of Israel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we are truly humbled as we see how it is that you have delivered us, how in your saving us you are saving all Israel this very day. May you be glorified in us. May you, O Lord, glorify your name as your Spirit teaches us how to worship you. May we, O Lord, as your people, acknowledge your grace has delivered us and sing your praises now and forever. Amen. So let's then stand and sing from Psalm 87, the missionary hymn, Zion founded on the mountains, calling all nations to come and worship God in spirit and in truth. Let us stand and sing. Thank you. 